0: Amen. If you have your Bible this evening, and you would, find with me Matthew, the 21st chapter as we're going through uh, the book of Matthew, and as you uh, find that tonight, I want to talk to you about rejection or acceptance, and I think this is probably something that all of us, even though we won't admit to, uh, think about. When we meet someone for the first time, we think, is this someone who... Who I'm going to have a relationship, I'm going to be friends with, or are they going to be too weird for me to hang out with? Or uh, are they not going to like me? Uh, uh, you know, what What does that look like? And I think that all of us go through different stages of that. Sometimes it's as you advance through school, you think, uh, is junior high going to be a success or a failure? Uh, some of you are thinking, I don't even remember junior high. That's I know it was a long time ago, but when you started a new job, or when you asked your future wife out or husband for the first time? Is this going to be an acceptance or a rejection? And as we look in the Bible tonight, I think Matthew chapter 21 might be the saddest chapter for a group of people that you will find in the New Testament. And you say, Jake, I don't understand why it is the saddest. Because in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus begins to talk to the religious leaders of Israel. And begins to explain to them that if there was one group of people, if there was one section of the population who should have known better, who should have understood, who should have received these blessings, it was them. You have probably at some point in your life looked back and said, I knew better. Or if you're like me and you can sit in judgment of other people too much, they should have known better. And what Jesus literally tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the nation of Israel as a whole, you should have known better. And because you did not know better, and because you have rejected who I am, the promises, the blessings, the being used is going to go to the Gentiles. Now, I believe that God is going to restore the nation of Israel later. I believe He will use them to reach people and, and to be evangelists and to, and to usher in the coming of, of what is going to happen in the book of Revelation. But as of today, Israel's promises have been given to us, the church, the mission of taking the gospel to the whole world. And so tonight I really hope that as we look through this, that you do not think, well, I'm glad I'm not Jewish, or I'm glad I didn't do that. Because the same spirit of hypocrisy and the same spirit of self-righteousness can begin to slip into our hearts as well. And so if you would stand with me out of a reverence to reading God's Word. In Matthew chapter 23, we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks, but I want you to hear what Jesus said to this same group of people. Starting in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you are outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy. And lawlessness. Jesus just lays it all out and what the problem is. And so tonight, if you would pray with me, Father, tonight I come to you, Lord, admitting I am a sinful man. And Lord, I just pray tonight that you would forgive me. God, that you would help me to speak boldly but humbly, Lord, full of truth and grace. God, I pray that your spirit would work and move in the hearts of this group of people tonight, that you would make this the church that you want it to be. And Lord, that it would all be for your glory. And God, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I want to talk to you because if you have ever tried to talk to someone about church or someone who used to go to church, I don't know if you're aware of this today, we had 22 people who went door to door today inviting people to church, inviting them to vacation Bible school and and, uh, trying to continue to do what God has asked us to do. But the one thing that you'll usually hear from people when you invite them to church is, I don't want to go to church because it is full of hypocrites. And uh, most of us have been in church long enough to know that this is true. All hypocrites are sinners. and Don't miss this, but not all sinners are hypocrites. Now don't miss that tonight. All hypocrites are sinners, but not all sinners are hypocrites. You see, tonight, if you are here and you recognize that you are a sinner and that you know that you stumble and you are not trying to fake it and hide that you are a sinner, friends, that means you're not a hypocrite. You say, well, Jake, I got mad in traffic and flipped off four people in the same incident. That doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. That means you're a sinner. You say, well, Jake, I got mad and lost my temper and said a whole bunch of choice words that I shouldn't have said. That doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you a sinner. Coming into Sunday school and telling everybody that you've not cursed in 12 years makes you a hypocrite after you just cussed off three people in the parking lot because they took your spot. You see, the church is the one organization in the world that we require that you must admit that you are a Sinner. Most places, if you're a successful business member, come on in. We want you to be a part of our group. If you have been successful, you can do this or that. Or if you're an influential member in the community, you can join Kiwanis or Gideons. or. But the church literally says, if you know that you are a sinner and are a broken mess in need of a Savior, come and join us. But yet then, when we sin, we look around like, I can't believe that sin happened. You see, friends, we must remember that we will struggle with sin until the day that we die. We will struggle with the flesh. Now, does that mean that is an excuse to do what we want? Absolutely not. But Jesus was not talking to the tax collectors, to the harlots. He wasn't talking to them in this passage of Scripture. He was talking to people who thought they had no sin but yet we're hiding it better than the rest. And you say, Jake, what in the world does that have to do with where we're at tonight? I'm glad that you would like to know. But I want you to take notes tonight, and I don't have them on the screen just because I was in a hurry, and I'm not as good at this as Lucas and Mike. But the first is this. Jesus uses this supernatural event to teach important truth. Jesus uses this supernatural event to teach important truth. Look at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 21. Starting in Matthew chapter 21, if you remember, Jesus has been cleaning the temple out. He's been overturning the tables. God's blessing has returned. People are being healed. People are are being made well. And Jesus gets opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then it says here in verse 18, Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt... You will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now you say, I don't understand how a dying fig tree is talking about hypocrisy. You see, a fig tree in this day and age, if you've read the book of Mark, you'll know there are some differences in the story. We don't know exactly why or what, but yet they're both true. And so he walks up to this fig tree because we know that as Jesus would do ministry in Jerusalem, he would go about two miles and stay at Mary and Martha's house. And so as he is leaving their house for whatever reason, coming back to town, he looks at a fig tree. He's hungry. And if you read the Old Testament, it's not a sin to take a fig off a fig tree or to take the grain from the edge of a field. You just couldn't take more than you could carry and eat at the moment. And so Jesus walks up to this fig tree, and it's full of the leaves, it's full of all of the the outward appearance that it should have figs on it. But something important is here, if you've read the book of Mark, that it wasn't in season. But yet Jesus gets angry at the tree... Because it's not producing figs, but yet it wasn't time for figs to be produced. It's kind of like a farmer walking out and looking right now at a cornfield and say, Why aren't you six feet tall? Why aren't you full of of corn and why isn't it ready to be harvested? Because half of it's not even in the ground, right? It's not the season for harvest. But yet Jesus gets upset about a fig tree that is not producing, even though it's not supposed to produce now. Jesus does not have something against figs. Jesus does not have something against fig trees. What Jesus is trying to teach them is this. Just because you look like you're healthy, just like you look like you're producing fruit, just because you look like you have it all together, if the fruit is not there, you are useless. And what he was saying is, he's using this to tell the nation of Israel, you have the Old Testament. You have all the dress code. You've added extra rules to don't walk this far on the Sabbath. And you've added added extra rules about don't eat this and don't eat that. You look exactly like you should look. But there is no fruit in the spiritual tree. And what he says is, I am taking the blessings from you and you will not produce anymore. You see, Jesus uses this supernatural event to teach them that God will not be mocked, that God knows your heart and He knows mine. And tonight, the issue is not are we sinners, but what do we do with our sin? Are we a church that celebrates sin? You can look at some of the mainline denominations that are allowing homosexuals in the pulpit. They're they're allowing churches to be pro-choice in their beliefs on the sanctity of human life. And we look at them and say, oh no, that's embracing sin. But yet you can look at some of the most strict, old-fashioned Pentecostal or fundamental Baptist churches that said you have to have your hair this length and you're dressed this length and yet I have seen some of those people with the same length of hair but yet their tongues were longer than anyone else I've ever met. But yet the strict legalism said if you don't dress this way you don't talk this way, you don't live this way then you are not the Christian that I am. And what we need to recognize is that both of those extremes will suck the life out of what God is doing here. You see, we have to be people who admit that we are sinners. Admit that God can forgive us of our sin. Admit that God can change us and give us victory over our sin. Because if we're not willing to, eventually God is going to walk up to you and I and say, there is no fruit on the tree. There is nothing growing that God has done here. As one time I saw the Church of Christ said on their sign, God is looking for spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. Love that sign, love it. Always enjoyed church signs. But friends, tonight I want to ask you this simple question. Is there anything in your life that you can attribute to what God is doing? And is there anything in your life that you know that God doesn't want there, but you're hiding it? You say, Jake, you preached on the same thing this morning. I don't put these sermons together. They just work that way. And so tonight as we look at this, I want to challenge you to look at the fruit in your life. Are you watching God give you victory over sin? Are you watching God change your heart about how you view lost people? Are you becoming cold and bitter the longer you serve God? Or is God beginning to soften your heart and change the way that you view people? Jesus is saying here to this fig tree and to the nation of Israel that Jesus will judge those who put on a show to worship and I want to be very careful this, this morning because honestly, sometimes we could use some more freedom in worship. We could use some people that would be just a little bit happy, a little bit excited to be here, a little bit, a little bit more, hey, this is not a funeral. We celebrate a risen Savior. All right? But yet there's a danger to know that there are some times when worship becomes very me-centered. And it's about what I want to do, and I want people to see me, and I want people to know me. And what Jesus says is, he'll have none of that. It might go on for a season, but eventually God says, I'm not looking for the outward show of worship, but the issue of the heart. And this fig tree looked like it, but wasn't. And so this morning as we look at our church, as you look at your life, as you look at your relationship with God, Is there any real fruit being produced? Because the second thing I want to show you tonight is, some of you are going to be saying, like I say, well, who does He think He is? Right? Who, who, Who does God think He is to be able to tell me my faults? The answer to that is He's God. And I want to leave you this tonight is, Jesus has total authority regardless of who we think we are. You say, Jake, you just talked about authority this morning. I can't help it. Once again, in verse 23, listen to what Jesus begins to say. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him. And as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who has given you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing. Which of you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude. For all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, the religious leaders of the day were saying, you didn't go to our school. You didn't go to our seminary. You didn't sit under our authority. Who do you think you are to be able to flip tables and tell us that we're sinners and tell us that we're whitewashed tombs and to heal people and to make people well? Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, well, I'll ask you a question to see if you can answer. And in this passage of Scripture, we see he asked them about John the Baptist. You see, because they had to recognize one of two things. If John really was sent by God, they didn't go get baptized. They didn't respond to his message of repentance. They ignored what God had for them. And so they had to admit that they weren't very spiritual at all. But if they said, no, John was not of God and we were right, then they feared that the people who had made professions and who had responded, would stone them. And so in their mind, no matter what they answered, it would be wrong. What they could have said was, we were sinners, and John was a man of God, and we should have responded. That's all that would have taken for them to humil- have humility and respond and accept the blessing of God. But they were too worried about being thought of as religious know-it-alls. They were too busy to worry about their prestige and their recognition. And so instead of answering him, they claimed to do not know. Now, I don't know if you understand this or not, but for a Jewish rabbi to say that they did not know the answer in a culture that was all about knowing the most, it was one of the most humiliating things that they could say. But friends, them publicly humiliating themselves was still better than admitting that they were wrong. Don't miss that. Publicly humiliating themselves was still better than admitting that they had missed what God was doing in their life. And friends, I really do believe that heaven will be full of people who knew very little about the things of the church, but yet had a relationship with Jesus. And hell will be people who know every page of the Baptist faith and message, every line of the church covenant, but do not really know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of their life. Why? Because they were too prideful to admit that they had worshipped a religion and not a Savior. That they had spent so much time knowing the things of God and not knowing God. Tonight I have no idea what your relationship is with God. But I've seen it before. I've seen someone in their 80s recognize that they've been a church member for 60 plus years but realize that if they died tonight, that they would have died and went to hell. And friends, what do you think was keeping that person from making that public decision? What will people think of me? Tonight I challenge you with that, because what kind of a world do we live in when people should be afraid of what people are going to think if they get saved? Now I'm not saying that was a justifiable excuse or a justifiable feeling, but for some reason that what was going through someone's mind. And so we must be a church that celebrates salvation, that celebrates God changing a life. Whether it's a deacon's wife, a pastor, whether it's a a kid on the bus ministry, whether it's a, a family that's coming from addiction, if God saves them, we should celebrate them. I'm going to say this and it's going to get me in trouble and I don't care. Literally, I saw someone give their heart and life to Jesus Christ. It was one of those wow moments. And the first comment that I heard at church was, well, maybe that'll help. I went, what do you mean that'll help? Well, you know them. Maybe this'll help. And I thought in me, everything in me wanted to say, maybe you ought to get saved. And we'll really experience what God can do. You see, friends, we should never get into a place where we are more high and mighty than someone else, than someone had the courage to say, I'm lost and need to be found. And so Jesus had the authority to say, this is the way it is, this is the way it's going to be. And It doesn't matter who we think that we are. The third thing I want to show you is is because Jesus begins to teach parables to them. He begins to give them examples of what He's already taught them. And what we see here in verses 28 through 32, Jesus desires obedience more than words. Jesus desires obedience more than words. Because the Jewish people knew the words. They knew the Psalms. They knew the prayers. They knew all of the things to make them acceptable to God in their mind. But Jesus begins to just look at them and tear every argument that they have down. Starting in verse 28, Jesus says, But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, The first... Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the ways of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. He says, You who are spiritual say you love God, but you won't do anything about it. And the people who said they were not of God, who lived like the world, who talked like the world, who were the most wicked of society, even though they said they did not want God, when the time came for them to believe, they did believe. But don't miss this, that's not where he stops this passage of Scripture. He begins to then tell them, the problem in all of this was, you saw it, and yet you still did not believe. He says it wasn't the fact that you rejected it at the beginning or that you accepted it at the beginning. But yet when you saw that God was at work, you still would not relent and believe Him. You see, friends, that's the great tragedy with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not if we are sinners. Hypocrisy is not do we struggle with sin. Hypocrisy is when we know that God can forgive us, when we know that God can set us free. We know that God can give us hope. We know that God can change everything about us, but yet we will not let Him. But yet we do not have the integrity and courage to admit it. To admit that God can do something different in my life. Tonight I want to challenge you with that simple truth. If you know what God can do, and that God is willing to do it in your life, why would you not let Him? Why would you not let God give you victory in your marriage? rather than faking it while you're here? Why would you not let God give you victory over the sin that's hidden in your life, rather than letting God give you the victory? You've seen God do it to other people. You've maybe even seen God do it in your life. But yet, for whatever reason tonight, you're here saying, like the children of Israel, God, we know it's real, but we want no part of it. It goes on, and this is the last thing I have for you tonight for the sake of time and for the poor fact that Jennifer has four of my kids on the floor over there trying to make them behave. Jesus will be rejected by some, but He will also be saviors to others. Because tonight, even though God is telling the nation of Israel, you know what, the blessing is leaving you and it's going to the Gentiles. They're going to get the privilege. And we see that in the book of Acts where thousands of people are saved. We see it tonight by the fact that we are not Jewish, that we are Gentile people. But Jesus gives them another parable. And I know what you're saying has a lot of Scripture tonight. Yes, because anytime you talk about hypocrisy in the church, it better not be from the preacher because no one wants to hear it. But it's straight from the mouth of Jesus. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive his fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, "They will respect my son." But when the vine dressers saw the sun, they said among themselves, "This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance." So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, "He will destroy those wicked men miserably." And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the first fruits in their season. I want to stop right there. Because what is happening here is the same thing that Nathan did to David. David, a man, had one little animal. And he loved that animal. He cherished that animal. He fed that animal. He took care of that animal. And another man had all the animals he could want. But yet that man who had everything wanted that one little animal. And he killed him and took it. And David says, that man ought to be found. That man ought to be punished. Who could do something like that? You see, David's sin wasn't just what he had done. It was the fact that he would not admit what he does. And Nathan says, that man is you. What you have done to Uriah, and what you have done to his wife, that is you. And what Jesus does is tells them this parable. And he lays it all out because in their minds they would have been angry. They'd be like, well, who would do that to a vine dresser? Who would do that to a man who had been good to them and and lent them and least? Who would do that in their right mind to another human being? And Jesus looks at the very people who he's talking to and has courage like no other preacher that has ever lived and says these words. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone with the builder rejected? has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. He's not saying someone else, he says from you, and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that He was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on Him, they feared the multitudes because they took Him for a prophet. Jesus stood there, knowing their hearts, knowing their lives, and said, you are the wicked men. You are the ones who have murdered and killed and destroyed. And what He was talking about was the entire Old Testament... He says, we sent you prophet. We sent you Elijah. We sent you Elisha. We sent you all of the Old Testament prophets, but yet you killed them, and you stoned them, and you rejected them. And here comes the Son, the inheritor of everything, reaching out to you, drawing you, caring about you, loving you, making a way for you to experience salvation and hope, but yet you will not listen. And he says, because of that, you will be taken. The blessings will be taken and given to another. But we see here that this same truth applies to us. Because tonight, if you are here, you are a sinner. It does not matter how long you've been a believer. It doesn't matter how long you've been a member of this church. You are a sinner. And Jesus has made every effort to save you. You have heard the gospel preached. You have the scriptures in front of you, hopefully. You've probably read Bible tracts. You've heard sermons. You have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And tonight, Jesus is the cornerstone. Tonight, He can be the one who sets you free from your sin, sets you free from your baggage, sets you free from your brokenness because of what He did on the cross or tonight you can reject Him, and He will crush you. You say, wait a second, Jake, that's not, that's not very loving. Not today, maybe. But one of these days when you stand before Him on the day of judgment, friends, it will not be about were you a church member, were you not a church member, were you a Baptist, or were you a Methodist. It is all going to be about what did you do with the free gift of salvation that Jesus Christ purchased for you on the cross. And today, if you say, Jake, I've rejected that, it will be what condemns you for all eternity. It is what will keep you from entering into an eternal rest because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through the same through the Son, There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus says here I am I am the way I can save you and they said we would rather stone you and friends tonight the same offer that Jesus made them is applicable to us. First for salvation but second for blessing Tonight, if you're here and you were saved, you will always struggle with the temptation the longer you were saved to convince people that you are holier than you are. I don't know why we do it. Sanctification does not work the same speed for all of us. Some of you, as you grow in your faith, will experience victories faster than other people. Some of you came into the church and began knowing more and understanding more and being able to live out more. But yet we define everybody on their perfection level. But we should not define people on their level of perfection because it's not there. Holiness is something that we should be striving for. But that's why the Bible says that those of you who have bring someone back who have went astray, that we should love each other that covers a multitude of sins, We should expect sin. We should expect failure. We should expect that we're not going to be perfect, but yet the Spirit of God can convict us and deal with us and change us and give us hope that who I am today is not who I have to be tomorrow. And the failures I experience today don't have to be the failures that I experience tomorrow. Because what happens is one of two things. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. God doesn't need to change anything else about me. Right? My life is His. I'm going to heaven. I don't need to read my Bible more. I don't need to pray more. I don't need to witness. Those things are for super Christians. What you've effectively done is say, God, do not work in my life. Or two, you've said, God, there's things in my life that I know aren't right, but I don't want anyone else to know about them. And friends, what you've effectively said is, God, I am not producing spiritual fruit. I want no part of it and what Jesus says is, He is talking to you tonight. You see, that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. God can forgive you from any sin other than blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Tonight, it doesn't matter where you're from, what you've done, who you are, God can forgive you. But God will not allow His people to claim to be holy, to live wicked, and to be blessed by Him. And I just challenge you with that. Because if Jesus would do this to the nation of Israel, the nation who He had done everything for, His chosen people, He is the one that provided them the land. He is the one that defeated their enemies. He is the one that's established them. And He says, at some point, enough is enough. The same is true to us. I personally believe, The Bible teaches that the Spirit of God convicts all men at some point to be saved. That's why they said in the book of Acts, Do not resist the Holy Spirit like your fathers and your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers. But I believe that when you take your last breath, and you have never repented of your sins, and called upon the name of the Lord to be the Lord and Savior of your life, that you will stand before God and you will hear, Depart from me, I never knew you, and that you will enter into a place of eternal damnation, and at the great white throne judgment, you will stand before God, and you, along with Satan and all of the angels of hell, will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. Believe that's what the Bible teaches. But friends, until you take your last breath, God is saying to you, repent. That's why the Bible finishes with an invitation to come. To come and drink from the water of life. But tonight, if this church wants to lose the blessing of God, it will not because we are sinners. God knows that we are sinners. It will because we do one of two things. We no longer deal with sin. Or we act like we have no sin. And in that moment, God will say, I don't need you. I will use someone else. And my prayer tonight is for me as an individual, for me as our family. Listen, you can spend very little time with us and realize that our family is a mess, literally and figuratively. Like I, like someone said, hey, I drove by your house and there was a whole bunch of naked kids in the yard. I wasn't there, I don't know, all right? You never know what you're going to get when you pull up at the gray house, all right? You just don't know. But we struggle with sin as well. Frustration, burnout, difficulty. Trying to be good parents and good spouses and, and the world is t- it, it's there. But friends, what I want for my family, what I want for me, and what I want for this church is for God to use us. And God never to look at us and say, you had your chance. You had your blessings. You had everything you needed but you wouldn't listen. And so tonight, my challenge to you is, will you get along with God? Let Him search you, let Him deal with you, and let Him use you for His glory. Father, tonight I thank You so very, very much for Your Word. Lord, I know that I have not done it justice, God. I know that I struggle and stumble through it, but God, tonight I pray that Your Holy Spirit would be at work in our lives. God, that we are all sinners that we don't embrace our sin, we don't celebrate our sin, but God, that we don't hide it. And Tonight, God, I pray that this congregation would be a group of people that would ask for forgiveness for all of our sin, that we would humble ourselves tonight, Lord, that you might lift us up. God, give us true passion and desire for you that we might love you with all that we have. Tonight, I pray for that person, God, who claims to know you, but God does not love you. God has let the things of this world separate them from any resemblance of a relationship with you. God, I pray tonight that you would show them they were never truly saved, or God, that they have backslidden to a point where, God, they are in danger of judgment. God, I pray tonight that you'd work and move in this congregation. Humble us, speak to us, deal with us, God, that we might watch you bless and work and move. And so tonight, God, I ask for your forgiveness again, and I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.